you know, the anti-choice movement across this country. This is quite frankly, just the beginning. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we typically invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. For this special episode, we talked about the Texas abortion ban and asked Liza Fuentes and Jamila Taylor, if TV can get it right, why can't Texas? Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? Oh, Lori, I am cringing. I'm cringing at so many things, but within the context of our show today, I'm cringing at the hashtag and the expression Texas Taliban. I understand that two horrible things happened within a short period of time. Texas effectively banned all abortions and the Taliban retook Afghanistan. But there is just so much wrong with that hashtag. And we don't need to conflate these two things. I also think that it's borderline racist and Islamophobic to conflate the two things because the people railing to ban abortion in Texas are not Muslims or or bringing in Sharia law. They're claiming to be Christians, but they're such extremists that most Christians I know don't want anything to do with them either. So let's just drop this hashtag and not conflate the issues. Agreed with that. Are you binging or cringing this week? I'm binging this week. I'll stay on theme. Uh, talking about Texas and abortion. And right now I am totally digging the videos that teens are making on TikTok to demonstrate how they are spamming the whistleblower website, prolifewhistleblower.com. So this was a website that was created by Texas Right to Life as a way to enable residents to report people for potential violations of this new six-week ban. The teens rightfully feel that this information is really none of Texas Right to Life's business. And so they've been spamming the website, overloading the system with false data so real reports can't be found and investigated. The kids are all right. I am so pleased with that story. (laughs) I just love that the kids are harnessing TikTok in such a politically effective way. I love it. I already spend hours on TikTok, so this is just making me feel more justified that that can be counted as political activity. (laughs) (laughs) So today, Layla, this episode is kind of about us being wrong, at least about an initial assumption. Yes, we were very wrong in our initial assumption. And just as a disclaimer, we're not always right. We're not expert in all things. We just like talking to other experts. It's true. And so that's actually how we started out creating this episode. We reached out to Steph Harold and Gretchen Cezanne, who are two researchers who study stigma and abortion in the media and TV. They work for a research group at the University of California, San Francisco. And we reached out to them and we were like, hey, we know this ban is terrible and we are sure that all these harmful ways that pop culture has influenced our views on abortion is a part of this story. And so we assumed that we would be able to talk to them about some of these problematic media depictions and draw a straight line from those depictions to the Texas ban. It turns out that we were not quite correct in assuming that TV depictions and media depictions of abortion have not gotten better over time. So it turns out that yes, TV has historically had a lot of issues with getting abortion stories right, but today most abortion stories on TV are not overtly stigmatizing and most are generally accurate. So while we've seen in the past things like 
white teenagers being overrepresented at the center of abortion stories or my personal favorite, the last minute cop-outs like, oh, that pregnancy wasn't real to begin with or, oh, I've conveniently had a miscarriage or, oh, I've changed my mind at the last minute. So this TV show does not have to deal with depicting an abortion accurately. Overall, those are tropes that are becoming less and less common. It's true. I feel like I grew up on the conveniently timed miscarriage, but haven't seen as many in a while. That said, our friends at Answer, the Research Institute, also pointed out that we have a long way to go. And part of the issue around destigmatizing abortion is showing more experiences that are true to real people's lives. And that means more diverse stories on TV, more characters of color, more queer characters, trans non-binary characters, really looking at what barriers people face in seeking an abortion, something we're going to talk about in depth today on our episode, and looking around new narratives about what it means to have a legal or an illegal abortion. And finally, we need more stories about medication abortion, which is the way more and more abortions are happening right now, not clinical or surgical procedure at all, but people taking pills in the privacy of their own home. And what Gretchen and Steph shared with us was some evidence that showing stories like this on TV can actually help people. And they cited a recent plot line of Grey's Anatomy that gave such good detail about medication abortion that viewers' knowledge was significantly increased about abortion pills, how they work, what the side effects are, how to take them. It's really heartening to know that TV can have a positive impact like that. So what this all tells me overall is that, you know, we're not just telling you that we were wrong in order to be self-deprecating, although I'm sure it is adorable for you. But what this really is telling me is that The new law in Texas is actually out of step with the culture where TV depictions of abortion have been improving, even though there's, you know, still some direction that we need to go in. The culture is overall progressing in the right direction, but extreme anti-rights activists still have such a stronghold on the laws and the court that they're able to get a law like this in place even when overall the conversation has moved so much beyond these really restrictive, horrific understandings of healthcare and abortion rights. So we found two perfect guests to help us understand how exactly we got here. And we're so excited for you to hear from these brilliant women. They've both collectively been in this work for decades. They're extremely knowledgeable, but they also have that ability to share their knowledge in ways that's really accessible. So you're going to hear today from Dr. Liza Fuentes. She is a senior research scientist at the Guttmacher Institute. And you will also hear from Dr. Jamila Taylor, who is director of healthcare reform and a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. They are really knowledgeable. They're also really funny and down to earth. And my personal favorite thing is that they give us some concrete things to do and some real reasons, even have hope at the end of the day, even when things feel very messy, as Jamila put it. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Liza and Jamila. Enjoy. Welcome, Liza and Jamila. We're so sorry to ask you to labor on Labor Day, but really excited to have the two of you to talk through the incomprehensible state of the world and state of abortion rights right now. I loosely think of you, Liza, as a researcher and Jamila, you as a policy analyst, but I think if anyone 
is a cross trainer. You're the most politicized researcher I know, Liza, and the most evidence-based uh, policy analyst I know, Jamila. So Lori and I are just so grateful to have the two of you here to talk about these things today. Thank you so much for making time on a long weekend. And we really appreciate you also jumping in on very short notice. So thank you for doing that. And we want to get right into it for folks because I don't know many people who are not talking about this new law. Um, it feels like it's everywhere. Surprisingly or not surprisingly, even in an Uber that you get into, everyone is talking about this law. Um, it feels like to me, it has struck a chord for people maybe that previous abortion bans that I understood to be also very terrible, like just didn't make this big of a splash. So I want to talk to you all about why that is and what's going on. So Jamila, maybe we can just start with you and get a little bit of the basics in. So what is this new Texas law? What is it about and what does it say? Sure, absolutely. Well, before I get into that, just want to thank you, Layla and Lori, for having us today. So SB8 is an abortion ban that bans abortion after six weeks. Um, it does not include um, exceptions for rape or incest. So it's really a near total ban on abortion and one of the strictest in the country. Um, and I think it's important to sort of say that in context because most people don't even know that they're pregnant after six weeks. Another piece of the law is that it would allow a bounty that encourages practically any citizen to file a cause of action against physicians, other healthcare professionals, um, even an Uber driver, anyone who aids or abets based on suspicion. Thank you so much. And that would explain why the drivers are more invested in abortion than I've seen in my lifetime. And I guess, Liza, I'm curious if you can speak a little bit about what we know about the impact of a policy like this, and especially on like low-income communities of color. What does this look like? Yeah, it's a good question. Unfortunately, we have a lot of information about how this law is affecting people right now today because it is being enacted and implemented because this is not Texas's first rodeo. They have effectively banned certain types of abortions a couple of times in the past. In 2004, Texas passed a law requiring that all abortions past 16 weeks be provided in what's called an ambulatory surgical center, which is an outpatient enhanced hospital-like clinic, which is not necessary to provide abortion at any stage of pregnancy. However, there were no what we call ASCs, ambulatory surgical centers providing abortion in Texas. So from one day to the next, when that law was implemented, there was no abortion care available in Texas past 16 weeks. It was effectively a ban on abortion past 16 weeks until um, some providers were able to build ASCs a couple of years later. And then in 2013, the Texas state legislature passed a law and the governor signed it and it got implemented, requiring another round of onerous restrictions or requirements for clinics, including that all abortions be provided in ASCs, that all clinicians providing abortion have hospital admitting privileges, neither of which are necessary to provide safe care. And from one day to the next, when that law was implemented, nearly half the clinics in the state closed. So it wasn't an abortion ban, but severely restricted the accessibility of abortion. And then in March, 2020, the state 
required that uh, what was considered elective surgeries be halted as a precaution against COVID at the time. And the state interpreted abortion care to be non-essential, non-essential surgeries that were halted at the time. And so from March to about April for a month, there was no abortion care available in Texas. And all the studies that we've done evaluating these three policies have shown that people travel very long distances out of state to be able to obtain abortion care. But we also know that not everyone can travel out of state. It's expensive. It's incredibly time consuming. And as many people know, and some people don't realize, Texas is a really big state, really big. So depending on where you live, getting out of state could take hours and hours and hours of driving. And in pretty much all of these cases, people traveled. The proportion of abortions later in pregnancy went up, which we interpret as causing undue delays in people accessing care. And in other cases, people may be forced to continue a pregnancy because they don't have the resources to obtain the care they need. And the big question that everyone asks is, will this cause people to consider self-managed abortion more so than they would have if the ban hadn't happened? There's a lot of emerging, interesting research about this, but it's very difficult to pin down like what people want to know, which is what is the number of self-managed abortions that will happen because of the law? It's impossible to know that number because we don't know, you know what people are going to do when they're in their home. But at least one or two studies have shown that for sure, when people cannot access a clinic, they will consider self-managed abortion. Yeah. I wanted to follow up on that and to, to Liza's, you know, many wonderful points. And just to say too, like, I think part of what we need to do as we, you know, think about a restriction like this, as well as others, is that they have a disproportionate impact on low-income people and people of color, right? So even as we sort of talk through what the implications are, even down to the options, right? Whether or not someone may have access to, you know, abortion with pills, you know, all of these things are still critically hard to access for people, you know, part of those populations. So I think in the context of, as we talk through this, I think it's important to to set the stage that not only is this about abortion rights, it's also a health equity issue as well. You know, we were going to ask this later on down the road, but since it's already come up, I think we should take a second to just talk about what is self-managed abortion and what is medication abortion, the ability to, to induce an abortion with pills. How has that sort of changed the landscape? It's a really, um, it's a good question. I'd also like to return to, you know, this question of like, why would a law like this, you know, disproportionately impact communities of color, especially black and brown women? And so I, you know, I have a Texas example I'd like to elaborate on. In terms of self-managed abortion, what does that mean? Typically, we think of a self-managed abortion as someone having an abortion outside medical care, right? They're not being helped by a clinician of any kind necessarily or a clinic. They're obtaining the methods or means of having an abortion and then they're carrying those out outside clinical care. However, the medications that induce abortion that are FDA approved in the United States, mifepristone and misoprostol, together, it's an FDA approved regimen that is administered by abortion providers. And the line between what we consider self-managed and not is a little bit blurred because some people will say any abortion with with medication is self-managed, right? People get the medication from the provider and they go home and they take pills and they have an abortion at home and they are effectively self-managing it. However, there is a regimen to induce abortion with misoprostol only. Um, That's pretty effective. It's almost as effective as the FDA approved regimen. And we do have evidence that some people in the United States obtain misoprostol 
either through online pharmacies or if they live in a uh, like a border region in Texas, they could go to a Mexican pharmacy and obtain misoprostol and take it at home and self-manage an abortion. The reason this has the availability of misoprostol has changed profoundly the landscape for access to abortion in the United States is because before these medications were available and before abortion was widely legal in the United States, so before 1973, more or less, the options for abortion care were very widely varied depending on the resources and wealth of the person seeking abortion, right? Before 1973, a few states had legal abortion, like New York and California, and New York did not have a residency requirement. Anyone could travel to New York to get an abortion if they could get here. And there were activist networks at the time helping people travel to have a safe legal abortion. Before that even, wealthy and white women got abortions from their doctors and doctors in their communities very safely, even though it was illegal with very little repercussions. It was low-income people and black and brown women whose only recourse at the time were unsafe options, right? People saying they were abortion providers that actually weren't or providing care in unsafe conditions um, where patients could be abused. So the availability of misoprostol in the past 20 to 30 years all around the world, not just the United States, has made a self-managed abortion very safe. And misoprostol is relatively inexpensive. Certainly for many people, it may the cost of it may still be out of reach. But the idea that someone could self-manage abortion safely was very, very foreign in decades past. And today we know that it's quite safe if you have access to these drugs. Yeah. And we're talking about the U.S. today, but I know globally, misoprostol is a very tested uh, single medication regimen around the world and has been a tactic of advocates in many countries because it's already available over the counter in pharmacies because it's an, uh, an ulcer medication. So it's a cheap, already available, very effective method that people in many different countries have used to try to advocate for better treatment of postpartum hemorrhage, or other emergency uh, obstetric care and inducing an abortion and completing unsafe abortions from, as you say, people seeking care from unknown provide from quacks. But, you know, getting back to your earlier point that this is not Texas's first rodeo, I think one of the reasons that, you know, Lori and I and our whole field are feeling the sense of urgency is because this does not seem like an accident or a fluke or an outlier. This Texas ruling going all the way up through the Supreme Court seems like a very concerted attack by the opposition. And uh, maybe, Jamila, you can start. Uh, what does this mean for the attack on Roe v. Wade, on abortion rights in America, and also on what other states we might see following suit? Sure, absolutely. Well, first off, I think, you know, I think we're going to see a cascading effect. You know, as you said, this is a concerted effort for, you know, the anti-choice movement across this country. This is quite frankly just the beginning. Um, one other thing I wanted to add, because Texas is such a mess, is that last week there was also a bill passed in the Texas House, SB4, which limits access to abortion-inducing pills, which we were just talking about. It would make it a criminal act for physicians to give these medications to patients more than seven weeks into pregnancy. So as we're sitting here talking about what other options pregnant and birthing people in Texas could have, 
you know, in lieu of SB8, you know, we also have this other bill, SB4, that has been passed. And so it's really a mess <laughs> across the board. The people in that state that need the support really are left with, with not many options. And so really wanted to put that out there as well. So back to my point about, you know, the trends in, in the rest of the country. I think, you know, we're largely seeing these, these really, you know, grotesque and you know, egregious abortion restrictions passed, like largely concentrated in the South. So I think that's one thing for us to to sort of keep in mind as we're sort of tracking these um, across states. There were a couple of states this week, you know, that have already sort of put out there that they're interested in, in passing similar bills, you know, to SB8. And so I think that's something that we should be aware of And I also think, too, that, you know, this moment that we're in, I I think we've seen this trend over the past, you know, few years, and I'm sure Liza can speak to this, too, you know, with her work um, with the Guttmacher Institute that does such wonderful research and sort of tracking um, state legislation when it comes to these abortion restrictions. We've seen, you know, an increase in these restrictions passed over the last several years. And again, I think it's a concerted effort to chip away at at Roe versus Wade. Um, But another thing to keep in mind, too, is that, you know, Roe is a floor, not a ceiling, right? And whereas we're starting to see you know, these more egregious and I think extreme abortion restrictions, we know that the right to choose is not real for many people in this country, right? You know, we still have abortion deserts in certain parts of the country. You know, we've talked about, you know, the the disproportionate impact of barriers on abortion access for low-income people and people of color. So when we think about those populations, you know, a lot of this is largely based on your zip code and where you live. You know, if you live in Texas, for example, abortion is not a right for you. Access is not a right for you. So the conversation about shipping at row, I think even with that, we need to sort of take it, you know, a step further and think about the fact that abortion is already hard to access in this country for millions of people. I think that's such an important point, Jamila, and perhaps a conversation for another day about the vision of the reproductive choice and justice movement and how much we've been able to, you know, accomplish and vision beyond Roe and and what that has ended up looking like today. But I'm curious if there's anything in particular about this Texas ban that especially challenges Roe. I've heard a lot of people be confused or especially alarmed about the bounty provision. And I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to why it might have been set up like that. And, you know, if there's anything there that folks should be aware of in terms of knowing their rights or, you know, anything that you feel like we need to clarify around what people need to report if they see something in Texas. I think that's a piece that people are very interested in of this law. That is such a great question. What is especially provocative or challenging to Roe about this law is such a good question. And the reason is because on the face of it, it is simply unconstitutional to ban abortion at six weeks. It is simply unconstitutional. There's really no two ways about it. And by the way, as an aside, something I don't think people realize is that when we say six weeks pregnant, nobody has been pregnant for six weeks. It is six weeks since the last menstrual period. Um, Most people were not pregnant for six weeks. It is a way that we use in medicine to measure the length of a pregnancy. A person has been pregnant potentially 
a week to 10 days at that point. That's effectively a ban on abortion. And it's potentially, you know, for people who have not followed this closely, but are broadly pro-choice, so shocking is because, you know, the law went into effect. Even though we've seen things like that before, this seems much broader. But it's not the law that's especially challenging to Roe because it's been allowed to be implemented and it's clearly goes against the way that Supreme Court has interpreted abortion rights via the Constitution in the past. What's different and especially challenging is the context. We have a Supreme Court that has decided to participate in the theater of the technicalities by which they allowed the law to be implemented. The law was specifically drafted so that government officials could not be sued. In the past, when we have challenged abortion laws in court, and I say we, the movement, I'm not a lawyer, it has been, for example, the Department of Health of the state that has enforced the abortion law. That was true in the Whole Woman's Health Supreme Court case. The defendant was the commissioner of health of the Department of Health of Texas. This law was specifically drafted to have citizens play cosplay, you know, a cop essentially, in order to get around that technicality. And the Supreme Court um, has decided to play along with that. That is the part that is especially challenging to Roe, that there's a very thinly veiled attempt to ban all abortions, either state by state or by over turning row without having the Supreme Court have to come out and say that they are basically taking stare decisis and throwing it on a rocket ship into outer space, which is respecting precedent. I was listening to The Daily, the New York Times podcast um, over the weekend, and they were saying that an element of this cosplay of, of calling on citizens to be the ones enforcing the law is that when the law first went into effect, there was no one to sue. There was no way to take it to court immediately to say this is unconstitutional and that part of shirking responsibility of the government onto the regular people to enforce the law was a way of skirting the accountability in our legal system. And I just worry about all the replicas. You know, Liza, you were talking about the requirements that Texas has tried to implement before that puts such a burden on regular health centers that provide abortion that need to have hospital style setups with when abortion is not a procedure that requires that. And it reminds me of when I was at Planned Parenthood visiting a gorgeous new health center in Florida that had just been built in the Miami area to serve that area for all kinds of women's health, sexual reproductive health care. They were showing us, we built the hallways this wide. We had to raise way more money than we needed to build a regular health center. We had to effectively build a hospital. And here are the modifications we would make if the Texas laws came our way. So they were already having to go above and beyond, build a hospital style health center for a regular everyday procedure, just in case the legislation came their way because they rightfully are terrified of it. Yeah. That is a a very important point. I mean, this law is not, you know, Texas going off the rails, but it it is a concerted and intentional effort to change the landscape of abortion provision in the United States to make it so expensive and untenable to provide this care that providers give up. And as an interesting aside, one of the things that's really quite difficult to capture from research Um, But is in some ways an intended effect of these types of laws is it scares and prevents healthcare providers who want to provide abortion care from even thinking about doing it, incorporating it into their practice. And it's a loss to the reproductive health care system in this country that is intangible to us at this point. 
I think that's a really important point. And we want to talk about the chilling effect and we want to talk about just the stigma that something like this causes. Um, so I think that's a good transition point. But before we go into our next section of the interview, um, we've we've gotten pretty bleak. All of this sounds very depressing. I'm, I'm just going to put that out there. I do know one positive solution that a lot of my Twitter feed has been promoting is abortion funds. It's been beautiful to see that it's become really popular for folks to point out that you can give to abortion funds as a way of pushing back against some of this. And I was wondering if you could just share a little bit, Liza, I know this is something you've worked on a lot. So just curious if you can share a little bit about how abortion funds work. What does that actually mean? And how does that counterbalance some of these terrible laws that we've been talking about? Yeah, it's been really wonderful to see the profile of abortion funds be raised at this time. Abortion funds are among the most important, both advocacy, but also direct service infrastructures for abortion in this country right now. Abortion funds are nonprofit organizations, often grassroots activist groups of friends, usually, and then, you know, volunteers who have come together to raise money to be able to cover the cost of an abortion for people who are unable to do so themselves, either because they're struggling to make ends meet, their health insurance doesn't cover abortion care, which is very common in this country, or they simply don't have health insurance. What usually happens is the organization, sometimes they have some paid staff, many abortion funds, if not most, I can't speak authoritatively on that, either are all volunteer or mostly run by volunteers with maybe one or two paid staff, sometimes part-time. Others have a little bit more infrastructure, but what's common to them is that they either work directly with people seeking abortion care or providers to cover the cost of, of abortion care for people. Some abortion funds provide what we often term practical support, so help people um, with transportation. That could be anything from providing a gas or a bus voucher to having a coordinated group of activists to actually bring somebody to the clinic or provide a place in their home for them to stay if they're traveling far or they have a two-day procedure, for example. And that aspect of abortion care, I think, has increased in the face of really draconian restrictions in states. So we have the T Fund in Texas and the Bridge Collective, which actually focus more on, on practical support. For a bit of context, abortion funds have been around, or at least the origins of them since before Roe, because before Roe, um, activist groups were helping people pay for and obtain abortion care. And after the Hyde Amendment was passed, um, I think in 1976-ish around there, which was an amendment to the federal budget saying that effectively Medicaid could not cover abortion care, um, abortion funds started focusing on covering the cost of abortion. So today there's probably over a hundred, I'm not an authority on this, abortion funds, and they have organized in the state of Texas to try to respond to the what is essentially a crisis at the moment to help people obtain the care that they need. Yeah. And I mean, full disclosure, Liza, you and I met way back in the day helping to do just that in New York. And I've always been very proud to be associated with the New York Abortion Access Fund. And it was just 
10 of us volunteers running a bank account and giving sort of small grants to clinics. But as you say, you know, we our, our fund didn't fund practical support. We just gave money directly to clinics to help pay for the procedure. So much of what we did was answer a voicemail or answer emails and help people figure out how to pay, how they were going to get to New York. New York, as you said before, Roe was a safe haven state. It's still a safe haven state. And in part of that, and this is a transition maybe to you, Jamila, it's because of how what public funding is available. We have we have domestic and international laws that prevent federal funding from paying for uh, for abortion as quote unquote a means of family planning. But state by state, Medicaid can can cover those costs. Jamila, what is the current landscape and the, the, the current sort of advocacy fight for, for funding to make abortion more accessible? Because I think the what the root of a lot of advocacy has always been that like, sure, you can have a law on the books, but as we've been discussing today, that does not mean someone can actually get an abortion. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the fight has broadened, I think. I think we've shifted from you know, this sort of singular focus on the restrictions per se and, and, and a lot of energy on there. And I think as a community, we we are moving more towards a reproductive justice intersectional focus on how we how we do the work, which I think is important, you know, especially when we talk about the marginalized communities that have intersecting oppressions that keep them from accessing comprehensive health care. So I think one piece of the fight, you know, as you mentioned, is that, you know, there are restrictions on, you know, federal funding of abortion and the community is galvanized and mobilized um, to ensure that we break down <laughs> those or get rid of those um, restrictions on federal funding for abortion. And so there's the domestic effort that is, is largely led by women of color groups like All Above All, you know, NNAF and others um, that are working to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, as well as, you know, similar restrictions on um, domestic funding for abortion. And then on the flip side of that, you know, there's also an effort um, led by groups like IPASS and PAI and others that is focused on getting rid of the Helms Amendment, which we, we sort of call the international counterpart um, to Hyde, which restricts federal funding of abortion um, in the U.S. foreign aid budget. Um, so that's happening. But again, you know, the focus is more intersectional these days. So, you know, groups are also talking about the intersections of economic justice and, you know, access to reproductive health care, um, how housing instability and some of these other, you know, so-called social determinants of health also impact, you know, access to abortion and reproductive health care. And I think the, the moment requires us to be more intersectional in how we focus on these issues. I think, you know, women do not lead or pregnant people do not uh, lead single issue lives. And so it's important for us to sort of think about how, you know, lack of access to abortion has implications for, you know, other aspects of our lives. So important. Thank you so much for sharing that, Jamila. And, you know, I think when it comes to the funding piece, um, this is also one of those areas that I feel like most 
non-abortion professionals misunderstand so easily. And I remember when, you know, the quote unquote defund Planned Parenthood conversations were happening as they continue to happen. You know, so many of my friends would ask, well, you know, why do you guys need like a line item in the federal budget? And I'm like, we don't have a line item in the federal budget. That's not how it works. It drives me crazy that, you know, the communication around this, you know, in so many ways has gotten so skewed that actually people don't understand there are these ridiculous nonsensical exceptions to, you know, insurance reimbursement reimbursements and regular healthcare, you know, refund funding that um, specifically call out um, these healthcare issues for lack of funding. And it's really problematic and it, it prevents us from getting the, the life-saving care that we need. So I think we can wrap up here. You all have like broken down every complex area of this law with so much clarity and so much precision. It's so awesome. Thank you for doing that. I know our listeners are loving this. I know they're ready for their next Uber ride to explain this to everybody who asks. So we're going to go ahead and move to our cringe fire round. Now for our regular cringe watchers listeners, um, they're used to hearing a slightly different set of questions for our cringe fire round, but this is the Texas abortion style cringe fire round. So we've changed the questions around a little bit and we're gonna go back to that point, Liza, that you were making around stigma and representation and why those things really matter for, for national conversations around abortion rights. So we're gonna just jump into these quick, responses. Um, we just want to hear what's on your mind. And we will start with our first cringe fire question. Either of you can answer first, whatever comes to mind. We want to hear about what's the best or worst representation of abortion you've seen on TV or in film. What comes to mind for you? Well, the most recent one that I was just like, what is over the summer? I watched Little Fires Everywhere. And there's an episode where an adolescent gets an abortion and in the procedure room where she's having the abortion, there's a big birth control poster like promoting abstinence and IUDs. And I just thought it was like so stigmatizing. Who knows if it was historically accurate? It was like supposed to be 1997. But on the flip side, this person uh, requested Mateen's an abortion in the same day because apparently in the 90s, there was no parental consent in Ohio. So. So I picked Dirty Dancing, and it is because, first of all, they don't use the word abortion, you know, at all. And I remember watching it as a teenager and, like, had no clue what was going on there. And it wasn't until, literally, I was an adult with my own child, like, so that goes to show you how old I was watching it. And I was like, oh, snap, that she had an abortion. <laughs> so I just think, I mean, I recognize too, like the timing that they were in and all of that, but, but they, they still could have done that better, I think, in terms of, you know, the language use. And then I think just like the broader, you know, sort of situation um, that the, the young woman was in when she had to get the abortion. So that's, so I always go back to Dirty Dancing when I think of the worst adaptation of abortion for me. That's a good transition to our second question, which is, what do you think is one thing that people often get wrong about abortion and that you want people to better understand? can be any aspect of abortion rights or, or services. I think people think that an abortion procedure is a long and complicated surgery, and it's not. 
it's a sometimes five to 10, maybe a 10 minute procedure that is done without any cutting. And it's extremely safe. For me, I think that the biggest misperception is that, you know, is burdensome for the person who decides to have an abortion. Like they, it's like a deeply difficult decision that, you know, they may regret later, or it's really hard for them. And for most people, it is a sense of relief after they have an abortion. And so I, for me, I think that is, you know, the, the biggest misperception that I've seen. Thank you. What is one person or organization that people should be following right now? I'm going to shout out all above all, because even though we had a really important discussion today about the ways that the right to an abortion access to abortion care is being attacked in ways that are incredibly racist and classist. All above all is an organization that is making huge strides in advancing abortion rights. They are sort of the anchor in our movement to eliminating the Hyde Amendment and restoring insurance coverage across all types of insurance for abortion. And and Jamila spoke to that. Um, So I would say Um, If people want to also see the work that's being done proactively to advance abortion rights is to follow all above all. I'm going to go with a person. I'm going to say Renee Bracey Sherman, who is also known as the Beyonce of abortion. Renee is, you know, often shares her own abortion story and is such a huge advocate really nationally for everyone um, in this country in need of abortion. I think another thing that's really powerful about her is that, you know, being a Black woman and, and standing in her truth and, you know, supporting others, you know, and helping others, I think, have the courage to also share their abortion stories um, is just really powerful about Renee. I mean, she's just a fearless leader in our space. And um, I'm pretty sure that she already has a huge following, but if you're not already following her, it's a must. And related question, if we have the means to be putting our dollars towards this issue, where should we be donating? Who should we be supporting? Your local abortion fund. Just like everyone should know who their elected officials are at the city, state, county, national level, you should know what your local abortion fund is. You should know how they work. You know, do they fund people that are traveling to your area? Do they, you know, do they fund residents from your state and donate to them? Because the movement to advance abortion rights has to begin with organizing on the ground and and grassroots. And if everyone knew what their local abortion fund, who they were, and we're giving uh, money to them, the next time a state decides to ban abortion, it won't be a shock. We will all have seen it coming and have done our utmost best to prevent it. I co-sign everything Liza said. And then I'm going to say the Athia Center, which is a reproductive justice organization based in Dallas, Texas. You know, I don't think we're hearing enough about, you know, the RJ groups that are also doing abortion work on the ground, particularly in Texas in this moment. And the Athia Center is just wonderful about the work that they do. They center Black women um, in their support. They're also Black women-led organizations. So definitely check them out. And if you have the resources, give. Awesome. Well, that's so helpful. Thanks so much to you both. We cannot appreciate you enough for taking the time to just break this issue down for us and for 
all cringe watchers everywhere. You know, we don't typically format our show this way, but it felt really important to get smart people um, just in front of a microphone and, and share how people can act right now, because this is such a horrific and upsetting reality and we know we can change it. So is there anything else that you all wanted to say before we wrap up? I just want to thank you, Layla and Lori, for organizing this on a holiday weekend. It's been a really long and tough week, and it's um, really gratifying to be able to share space with you and Jamila, especially you, because it's been years since we shared a platform, and I'm so, so appreciative. I know. Same here, Liza. So it's so great to be on this podcast with you. And and now we have to think of an excuse to work together again. And yeah, I just want to thank Layla and Lori as well. This is really fantastic. The the work that you're doing with this podcast. And then just to your listeners, look, we need all soldiers like suited up and booted up, ready to go. Um, So everyone just stay engaged. And, you know, you've heard ideas for how you can give to organizations, but also think through how you can be involved personally in this fight. It it impacts all of us. Yes, it does. Thank you both so much. And I hope you can get back to less labor on Labor Day. (laughs) Thank you all. Appreciate you. Be well, stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you so much to our guests, Dr. Liza Fuentes and Dr. Jamila Taylor. You can find them on Twitter at Fuentes underscore Liza and at Dr. Taylor 09. That's D-R Taylor 09. Our editor is Karen Y. Chan. D.L. Dallas Engram created our theme song. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. Our ad music is by Siddhartha Corsis. You can support our show by visiting patreon.com backslash cringe watchers. Subscribe today and get amazing perks, including a shout out on this very show. You can also show your love by rating and reviewing the show and follow us on Instagram at cringe watchers. Thank you for cringe watching with us and we'll see you soon for season two. Bye.